You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, it was a crazy, crazy week in the repo market. For those of you that aren't familiar with the repo market, banks loan each other money overnight. And that market fell apart. The Fed literally had to manufacture new currency to allow this overnight lending between banks to continue. It is a red flag. We will be talking about it today with special guest, Mr. John Rubino, and that will be in an upcoming segment. But first, I want to talk a bit about a topic that we have discussed on the radio program here uh, at length many times, and that is that there are a lot of state pension plans that are in economic trouble. Now, the harsh reality has many states attempting to increase tax revenues to bring these pension plans back into full funding, which in turn has many of the state's more affluent residents looking to relocate to more tax-friendly states. Now, to be fair, underfunded pensions are not the only thing driving many states to increase taxes, but they are undoubtedly a big contributing factor. Now, I wrote about this in the most recent Portfolio Watch newsletter. For those of you that are not familiar with Portfolio Watch, Portfolio Watch is a weekly newsletter in which I analyze markets and discuss what's going on economically. If you're not a subscriber, there is no reason not to be a subscriber. You can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and sign up for your free subscription. The newsletter is delivered via email every Monday night at 5. And uh, we do not share your information and we don't send you scads of emails. You just get one email per week. This is from the most recent Portfolio Watch newsletter. As we have been predicting for several years, underfunded pensions are beginning to get attention. This is a topic that will continue to make more headlines as pension funding problems continue to get worse. Much of the problems facing pension plans have been brought about by central banking policies around the world. Many pension funds are still using extremely optimistic return assumptions. Returns that are unlikely to be realized over the long term given the artificially low interest rate environment in which we find ourselves. Given this reality, many states are now adjusting their actuarial assumptions to make them more conservative, but in my view, still not nearly conservative enough. Chief Investment Officer, which is a publication, ran an article this past week regarding the New York State Pension Fund. This from that article, in anticipation of lower return, a lower return investment environment, New York is lowering the long-term assumed rate of return on investments for the New York state and local retirement system to 6.8% from 7%. Now, the reality is 6.8% is still a tough hill to climb, and I'll talk about this uh, in the third segment today with my special guest, Mr. John Rubino. Now, New York alone uh, is not alone, rather, in taking these steps. Uh, if you take a look at a lot of the news reports that have been out over the past few weeks, a number, a number of states are taking similar steps. Now, this 
article uh, has to do with uh, that very topic. There was a study published by Fitch Ratings, and Fitch is a rating service. If you're not familiar with Fitch, it's a rating service kind of like Standard & Poor's. And I'll give you just a bit from this article regarding the, uh, the study that Fitch did as well. It's a basic principle of investing. The greater risk an investor takes, the greater the potential reward. But as any experienced investor can attest, increased risk can also bring bigger disappointment. In other words, the more risk you take, uh, the greater the potential that you're disappointed when your investment returns are negative. That's the case with state pension funds. To elevate returns, public sector pensions have taken on more and more risk for nearly two decades. The result has been lower returns, higher debt, and now a mess for taxpayers, according to this study by Fitch that I previously mentioned. Since 2001, the study found most government pension plans have boosted their share of investments in riskier financial vehicles, from volatile stocks to real estate. During this period, pension funds achieved median annualized returns of just 6.4%, well below the goal of 75 to 8% returns. Only one pension system has met its investing goal since 2001. No wonder, then, that the indebtedness of state systems has increased from $33 billion to a staggering $1.5 trillion. That is... Staggering one and a half trillion dollars. Now, why are pensions taking these risky investments on? Why are they investing more in real estate, more in stocks? Well, you need to only look at the yield curve for the answer. A 30 year U.S. Treasury bond now yields only 2%. How are you going to hit return goals of seven and a half to eight percent? if you're getting 2% on the bond portion of your portfolio. And as I'll talk about with John Rubino, as pension plans have existing higher-yielding bonds mature, they now have to exchange them for lower-yielding bonds. And as I've reported on past programs, there's now about $17 trillion of government debt worldwide yielding negative rates. So now we have a problem that is literally unsolvable. Imagine managing pension fund assets and having some bonds in your portfolio that are yielding 4% mature. Now you have to go out and replace those bonds with bonds that are yielding negative interest rates or maybe only slightly positive interest rates. So what are you going to do? Are you going to take negative interest rates or are you going to buy stocks and real estate? Obviously, you're going to make the latter decision because you have no choice. Now, the implications and fallout from pension underfunding are severe and they're far-reaching. I'll talk about them more in the last segment of today's program. But first, this low-yield environment is also affecting folks planning for retirement. If you would like to learn more about strategies you can use to protect yourself, strategies that you can use to potentially get consistent yields in this economic environment, I would invite you to learn more by attending one of our events. 
You can learn more about our upcoming events by visiting socialsecuritydinner.com. The website is socialsecuritydinner.com. All of our upcoming events are listed there. There's information online, and you can register online while capacity remains. I'll be back after these words with John Rubino. I'm pleased to have back on the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program today, Mr. John Rubino. Uh, John has uh, been on the show a couple times this year in January and then again in May and uh, made some forecasts regarding metals that uh, certainly have been spot on. So we thought it'd be great to catch up with John again. John's website you'll want to check out. It's dollarcollapse.com. The website again is dollarcollapse.com. And John, welcome back to the program. Hey, Dennis, good to be back. Yeah, and uh, John is kind enough to be talking to us today as he's traveling. So this interview is being done via Skype, uh, but we think the audio quality will be great. So, John, you uh, you look pretty smart today. We talked when gold was $1,200 an ounce, and uh, here we are north of $1,500, uh, just about as you predicted. So uh, congratulations, first of all, and then where do we go from here? Uh, well, first of all, Dennis, nobody can really predict the price of any market a few months in advance. You know, lots of people claim they can, but mostly they're just guessing. And uh, but my sense of the gold market all along has been that uh, we're, we're creating conditions in which a big financial crisis is almost inevitable that results in us having to devalue the major currencies of the world, and that that. You know, because as, as an older form of money that governments can't create more of in infinite quantities, um, gold will hold its value while the fiat currencies of the world are devalued really aggressively. Uh, but, you know, when that happens exactly is really a, a, a tough call. But it does seem to be gaining steam in the U.S. You know, it's, it's important to, uh, to mention that gold is at record high levels in most other countries versus most other currencies. But it's only in the U.S. where it seems to have been in a, a bear market for a long time and then languishing for a long time after that because the dollar was was unusually strong relative to other currencies. Because we kept our interest rates a little higher than, for instance, Europe or Japan did. You know, those guys have negative interest rates almost across the board. And we kept low but positive interest rates which made dollars more attractive. In other words, if you buy a treasury bond and you get a 2% yield, that's great compared to a German bond that yields you negative 0.5%. So there was a lot of interest in buying U.S. fixed income paper, which pushed up the value of the dollar. Well, now uh, a consensus is forming that negative interest rates are coming to the U.S. too. We, in the next recession, which is probably coming sometime soon, are going to have to push interest rates down really aggressively. Uh, even Alan Greenspan is out there saying, "Yeah, negative rates are okay, no big deal." You know, they're and they're probably going to happen. So now that that consensus is forming here, um, people are becoming more interested in precious metals in the U.S. as they have already become in the rest of the world because um, gold and silver tend to hold their value over long periods of time, while fiat currencies, especially those with negative interest rates in their fixed income markets tend to lose value over time. So, 
you know, if, uh, if it costs you a, a 1% a year to store some gold in a vault and it costs you 1% a year to own a treasury bond, obviously you want the form of money that's going to hold up well over time, which is gold. So that that's why precious metals are going up and it's why they ought to continue to go up irregularly over time. You know, there'll be big corrections in any kind of a bull market, but uh, they, they ought to go up over time until we have to have the, you know, the final currency reset where we go back to some kind of a gold standard and just define the dollar as a, a name for an, a certain amount of gold, probably in this case, one ten thousandth of an ounce of gold. So at that point, you know, when gold is $10,000 an ounce, maybe we'll, you know, we'll, we'll talk again and, and it'll be time to start selling, <laughs> but not yet. You know, now it's just hold on and enjoy the ride. So, John, this whole idea of negative interest rates, just to drill down on that topic for a minute, the whole thing just seems, I'm sure, to many of our listeners, if not all our listeners, just illogical. Um, who on earth would put their money in a bank or who, else, who would loan a government money only to get back less than you originally invested? I mean, it, it, are, are people really doing that or are, is this just a big central bank charade? Well, there, there are a lot of entities in the world that have no choice but to own um, bonds. You know, a bond fund obviously has to own bonds, so it has to buy them at whatever interest rate they're yielding. And pension funds have um, a designated section of their capital that goes into fixed income. So they have to buy bonds or, you know, other kinds of uh, uh, paper that yields a fixed income. Um, so, yeah, there, there are a lot of people that have to buy these things out there. And see, the reason that we're having rates reach these insanely low levels is that starting in basically 1971, we took the world off of the last remnants of the gold standard and in effect handed all the major governments unlimited credit cards. They, they just had these printing presses on which they could make as much new currency <clears throat> as they wanted to with no limitation. So they've been abusing that privilege and causing the amount of debt in the world to go up continuously. And every time it reaches an un unsustainable level, there's a big financial crisis and the governments of the world have to push interest rates down even further in order to stop the recession from turning into a depression. Um, and so in each cycle, rates have been forced lower. And now we're at the point where there's nowhere to go but negative. You know, we're at zero. So therefore, in the next recession, we have to push interest rates down into, uh, you know, negative one or negative two percent. That's where it is in Europe and in Japan right now. And that's where it will be in the U.S. in the next cycle, because normally when there's a recession and there's always a recession, you know, there's a, a business cycle in capitalist societies that uh, that can't really be um, done away with. You know, you build up a little bit too much debt. Companies make some bad investments and people borrow too much money. And then you have to have a slowdown in which a lot of that debt is wiped out. Well, we're 10 years into a recovery. And normally, um, expansions only last six years. So we're, we're very far along in this expansion, and it will end pretty soon, and everybody knows that. And normally, when an expansion ends and an economy tips into uh, recession, the Fed cuts interest rates about five percentage points. So that's what everybody's looking at, at out there now, where you know our, our 
30-year Treasury yields about 2%. So if the Fed is going to be forced to force interest rates down by 5% and the long end of the the, the bond um, spectrum goes along with it, then we're going to be at long-term rates um, of negative 2 or 3%. Uh, and it's probably going to be global. You know, the, the whole world is going to be in the same situation. And that's got everybody really spooked because we've never been there before. We've never tried an experiment in which the, most of the world has negative interest rates. And uh, there's, um, there's an economic concept called, it used to be called the zero bound, which was zero interest rates. And that, that was thought to be the place that you couldn't go any further. In other words, once interest rates at zero, you couldn't push them down any further because that would distort financial behavior to such an extent that the cure would be worse than the disease. In other words, it would disrupt the financial markets. Well, now interest rates are negative in a lot of parts of the world. So they're talking about the effective lower bound, which is that negative rate (laughs) that we can't go beyond. They don't know what it is, but they assume it's out there somewhere. Uh, So in the next cycle, in other words, in the next recession, we're going to embark on an experiment in which we try to find the effective lower bound, that place where interest rates are so low that they basically blow up the financial system. Now, you know, that's a crazy thing to attempt to find, right? Because once you are there, what do you do? You know, what's the solution to it? There is no fix, I don't think. And these guys feel compelled to do what they're going to do because they have no other tools. You know, all they've got is easier money. That's the only thing that they have left to stop what could be the next Great Depression if we don't do something to stop it. Uh, But if we hit the effective lower bound as we're trying to stop the Great Depression, what do we get then? You know, we get something maybe much worse, maybe some kind of hyperinflation or a a greater depression, something even worse than the 1930s. We just don't know. That's the thing. And that's what's got everybody so spooked. And that's why a lot of money is flowing into precious metals around the world, because Gold and to a lesser extent silver are perceived to be the places that you hide out when finance gets really, really crazy. And you can go all the way back to the Roman Empire um, 2,500 years ago and see that that happened. And it happened over and over and over again through financial crises in the ensuing two and a half millennia. Um, So it works. You know, that's what people do. And the people who own gold while a currency is being inflated away tend to do very well. You know, they they protect their purchasing power or they actually make a lot of money when, you know, panic capital starts flowing into precious metals. Uh, So that's becoming a thesis now that uh, even mainstream money managers are starting to buy into. You know, they're they're at least starting to say, well, you know, maybe you should have a a small part of your money in gold and silver, five or 10 percent, something like that. Which is a huge sea change because the uh, the amount of global investable capital that's in precious metals right now is less than one percent. So if mainstream money managers start advising their clients to get in, uh, you know, get five or ten percent of their capital in gold, that's a, an incredible amount of money flowing into what is a very small market relative to stocks and bonds. And we would just see precious metals take off in that circumstance. And uh, you know, all those pieces are coming together now. It looks like. This is an inevitability, something that's going to happen. And, uh, you know, barring a nuclear war or aliens landing or something like that, <laughs> we've kind of baked this into the cake. And, uh, and that's what makes it so interesting right now. From an economic 
nerd standpoint, you know, it's really interesting to watch this happening in a, a theoretical sense. I don't think it'll be very interesting or fun for most people, though, to live through it. John, in the next segment, I want to talk a bit about some of the craziness we saw in the repo market and explain to the listeners, uh, you know, how how rare that really is. But we've got a couple minutes left in this segment. And you, you mentioned, uh, just to drill down on what you said about pensions, that pensions are forced to buy bonds. And if they're forced to buy bonds that are yielding negative interest rates, typically pensions would ladder the maturities of their bonds. So presumably when bonds yielding some positive interest rate mature, these pensions are now forced to go out and potentially buy bonds that have negative interest rates. So um, aren't we going to see more of the kind of stories we're seeing out of Illinois and New Jersey moving ahead regarding pensions? Isn't this just going to destroy pretty much every pension that's out there? Oh, yeah. This, this is one of the things that um, is, is kind of an unattended consequence of what we're doing. But a lot of the people, obviously, in the policymaking community know that it's going to happen. But yeah, these, these pensions, for instance, if you're a teacher, you're paying into your pension fund. And that pension fund has guaranteed you a certain amount of money once you retire. And in order to have that money on hand, that pension fund has to generate a, a, an estimated return over time of let's say seven or eight percent but how do you do that in this world you know if you if you divide your money up between say stocks bonds and real estate um, and the bonds are usually the bigger part of your portfolio because they're relatively safe and predictable but if now those bonds don't literally shrink the capital that you put into them in other words not only don't you get much income from them, you get negative income, your capital shrinks. That makes it pretty much impossible for a pension fund to meet their targets, which means it's impossible for them to pay you your teacher's pension when the time comes. Uh, and as that becomes more and more obvious, because pension funds have to, um, they have to uh, report their funding levels. And as they become more and more underfunded, in other words, the, the gap between what they need to have and what they do have grows wider. Um, at, at some point, that turns into a crisis because everybody realizes they're never going to get paid. <laughs> and then you have this huge political crisis. It's not a financial crisis or a cash flow crisis until the payments actually have to start happening. But it becomes a political crisis because the teachers and the the police and the, the firefighters all start putting pressure on their their politicians, who they've elected, you know, via their union dues and everything, uh, to to fully fund their pensions, and that requires the city. For instance, Chicago, using them as an example, they got to raise taxes on everything in sight and cut services on everything that's current. You know, all the stuff they're doing right now has to be starved in order to fund their pensions. And so you get kind of, a, I have a series that uh, I've posted on dollarcollapse.com called Welcome to the Third World, about how we're descending into third world status in a lot of places, in, in part because of this pension thing, where cities are starving their current services in order to fund pensions for retirees who are no longer producing anything of value. Uh, so life gets harder and harder until we, you know, we start having situations like, like we used to see in say latin america or africa here you know so our, our you know our birthright of cities and states that run well are being taken away by this process and eventually that causes a political crisis which then causes a financial crisis so even if nothing else 
blows up on us. Just the pension thing could be a catalyst for a financial crisis out there in the future. Well, we are nearing the end of this segment. Our guest today is Mr. John Rubino. The website is dollarcollapse.com. I'd encourage you to check it out. I'll continue my conversation with John when RLA Radio returns. I am Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio. I am chatting today with Mr. John Rubino. Uh, John has the website dollarcollapse.com. I would encourage you to check it out. And uh, John, we've been chatting a bit about uh, what effect negative interest rates uh, have on pensions and you know just how generally crazy uh, economic conditions are. And last week, or, or the, the, this past week as we're recording this, um, the Fed literally had to dump a bunch of cash into the repo market. Can you explain to the listeners um, what exactly happened? I'm sure a lot of people probably read the headlines, heard it on the news, but they don't really understand it. Yeah, well, it, it sounds like uh, the guys uh, making policy right now don't understand it either. So <laughs> yeah, we're, we're very, all in very right. here. Um, basically, banks lend each other money very short term all the time in order to fund their investment activities or their lending activities or whatever. And it's, you know, it's usually a very smooth process because, you know, Goldman Sachs has some extra cash. They can lend it to Citigroup and know they're going to get it back in a couple of days. No big deal. Um, at, at a very low interest rate. But, um, in the last week or two that stopped, that didn't work anymore. For some reason, banks stopped being willing to lend to other banks. And, you know, normally that would be when there's, one big bank that's having some kind of a crisis and it spooks everybody because if one, you know, if Goldman Sachs can have a crisis, maybe JP Morgan Chase can too. So we aren't going to lend any money to anybody until we sort this out. But there's nothing like that out there. You know, there's no big crisis to point to. It just, the lending just stopped. And the Fed came out and said, well, there's a problem with the plumbing in the financial markets, which didn't help at anything. You know, like if you, if, there's a, a leak in one of your pipes or something like that. And the plumber comes and says, well, there's a problem with your plumbing. You knew that, right? You know, there's a problem with the plumbing. Now, what is the problem and how are we going to fix it? And nobody's coming up with a solution. So the Fed is basically just dumping money into the, um, the overnight lending market. And in that way, allowing it to continue. In other words, the Fed is basically creating new currency out of thin air, giving it to banks so the banks can continue to do what they were doing. And that's money they used to borrow from other banks, but they can't do that now. And the uh, the amounts of money are immense, you know, $70 billion in a, a single day. That's a lot of money, even in this world. And nobody really has come up with a good explanation for why it's happening yet. So that makes it way scarier than, oh, Citigroup has some trouble with their derivatives. You know, that would be a very scary thing, but at least it would be understandable and containable. Um, this, because we don't know what it is, you know, the, the fear that you don't understand is always greater than the thing you do understand. Uh, and, and so that's what's happening in the financial markets right now. People don't know why this is happening. Uh, and they know the Fed is having to take extraordinary steps to treat the symptom, but they don't know what the cause is. Uh, so we don't know where this is going to go because we really don't know why it's happening. 
uh, and and the stock market isn't reacting with any kind of panic. Neither is the bond market. The the, the other parts of the financial markets are going on as as if everything is normal. And it may well turn out to be normal. You know, maybe this goes away in a, in a few days and, and we never find out why it happened, but it's not happening now. So we forget about it. Or maybe it's the sign of, uh, of, of something fundamentally very serious under the surface that will bubble up and cause a huge amount of trouble. We just don't know. But it bears watching because we don't know. <laughs> you, know you know, it could be a bad thing, a very seriously bad thing. Um, another thing it could be is that uh, th- this is just kind of a backdoor beginning of the next round of quantitative easing. In other words, the the Fed was always going to have to start buying assets with newly created currency as a way of liquefying these markets. But everybody thought it would be during the next recession when housing tanked or the stock market was down by 30% or um, some of the big banks were overtly in trouble with their derivatives or whatever. You know, we we didn't know what it was going to be. But in recessions, there's always something like that. And we expected the Fed to have to step in with a new round of quantitative easing and a much bigger round. In other words, if $4 trillion did it last time, then it'll take $20 trillion this time. That, that was the expectation. Uh, so this could just be the beginning of that. Maybe the Fed just kind of segues from dumping money into the repo market to buying long-term bonds, to buying equities, to buying real estate, which is probably the way it's going to go later on. Uh, and this might just be seen as the beginning of that process. But the the really important point of all this is that we don't know. <laughs> Nobody really knows what's happening. And uh, mm-hmm. and that's potentially a very dangerous thing. So, John, if banks have money, if they have reserves to loan, but they're not doing it, um, isn't it because they perceive some kind of risk? I mean, don't you think there's some risk out there that just hasn't been publicized or or, or maybe uh, disclosed and, 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 and maybe banks know something that the rest of us don't? Is that a possibility? Well, well yeah. I mean, that's I, I think that's a, a, a concise description of the situation. Somebody knows something. I mean, why would they stop doing this thing that they've been doing for years and years and years with without a hiccup right now? You know, why is it happening now? Uh, and we don't know what it is they're seeing. But the implication is that is that they're seeing something because, like like you said, they've got a lot of reserves, which is basically um, money that they have that they aren't using to lend out right now. It's just sitting there in an account with the Fed, and it's it's in the trillions of dollars. So there's plenty of money. They and, and they would earn more if they lent it out in the overnight market, but they're not. So they're seeing something that has them spooked. And that's the uh, problem with the plumbing in the financial market. You know, that's what there is a problem, but we don't know what it is. Um, And, you know, it's possible we'll never know, but it's also possible that the thing that they're seeing becomes front page news and scares the hell out of everybody else in the financial market at some point in the not too distant future. We just don't know, you know. Um, for instance, last time around, when, when there was a housing bubble and the subprime mortgage market started to blow up, um, that was, first of all, a really tiny part of the mortgage market. And everybody just kind of poo-pooed it, you know, said, oh, it's so small, it doesn't matter. And and, uh, and it eventually metastasized to the rest of the global economy and caused, you know, near-death experience for the financial system. Um, so this has 
of similar feel where everybody's saying, well, you know, it's no big deal. The Fed's got this under control, uh, but maybe they don't, depending on what it is. And we'll hopefully find out what it is, but there's no guarantee that we ever do. Um, so it, this bears watching, but there isn't enough information <clears throat> to say anything with certainty about it right now, except that it's disturbing and it shouldn't happen in a well-run financial system. So, John, let's uh, shift gears for a little bit in the time we have left and talk a little bit about uh, your take, Your how do you perceive the, the U.S. economy? And we keep talking about a looming recession and predicting the what is obviously a lot easier than predicting the when, but where do you see the U.S. economy? What's the general health in your view at this point? Well, we, we bought our way out of the last downturn the Great Recession, by borrowing absolutely insane amounts of money everywhere in the world. You know, China quintupled its debt. The U.S. doubled its government debt. And uh, and now corporate debt is at record levels and household debt is way up and student loan debt is way up and car loans are way You know, it, it, we borrowed an incredible amount of money to generate the expansion that has gone on for 10 years. Uh, and at some point, the amount of money that we've taken on becomes debilitating. And that's the thing that we, we should all be worried about because once we hit that wall where borrowing more money not only doesn't generate more growth, but actually generates negative growth, you know, sort of the, the debt version of negative interest rates. Um, and that's, that's coming. You know, we can borrow more and more money, but we get less and less bang for it in terms of new GDP. And that that trend line is heading towards zero at a rapid pace now. Um, so when we hit that point, then we're out of tools. You know, borrowing more money doesn't help, but paying off debt is deflationary. And so, so it's a big crisis out there somewhere, but the timing of it, like you said, is the, the hard thing to predict because um, an economy can keep on chugging along just under the force of inertia for a long time. You know, people keep on borrowing money because nobody's telling them they can't and companies keep on buying back their stock with borrowed money and that pushes up stock prices and everything looks okay. Um, but when some crisis happens somewhere, that spooks everybody and kind of um, it, it lays bare the excessive debt that everybody has taken on and everybody gets scared. And, and then you see the, the economy tumble over into a recession, which in this case could be much worse than a garden variety recession. So it, it becomes a search for catalysts. In other words, what's going to do it? You know, what's the, the first domino that knocks everything down? And we had a possibility a couple of weeks ago when there was an attack on uh, the Saudi oil fields that, uh, that knocked, I guess, half of Saudi production out of, um, out of the market for a while. And that by itself could have caused an oil crisis, which could have knocked the economy over. And uh, if we had responded by attacking Iran, then oil prices would have gone through the roof. Um, the currency markets would have been sent into turmoil. The bond, you know, everything would have just um, been in danger of collapsing. So we saw something that could have been that crisis, that catalyst, but it didn't turn out to be. So the search goes on. <laughs> but there are a lot of other things that could blow up on us pretty much at any time. Uh, so you can't predict the timing at this point. 
but you can say with a high degree of certainty that something is going to happen just because so many things are, are kind of poised to happen. And it really only takes one, um, the, the Hong Kong thing where um, China was getting ready to send soldiers into what is uh, the most leveraged capitalist economy in the world in Hong Kong and, and you know, Brexit and, and its impact on the European Union and sharply negative interest rates around the world. All of these things have the potential to bring about the next recession, which then becomes a depression because we have taken on so much debt that we might not be able to manage that debt without rising cash flow. Um, but we don't know when. Uh, you know, there, there are signs of the global economy slowing down now dramatically. Apparently, Germany is now in recession. And if Germany's in recession, the rest of the, um, the European Union can't be far behind. And so that could do it. You know, there's lots of things that could do it. Um, the U.S. election is another thing. With, uh, with Trump apparently on the verge of being impeached <laughs> as we speak uh, and, uh, and the 2020 election coming up in which the Democrats could very easily nominate somebody who's basically an avowed socialist. Uh, that could also speak to financial markets. You know, if you've got Trump on the way out because he's he's on the verge of being indicted or kicked out of office via impeachment and somebody else coming in who's not a friend of free markets and private property uh, that could do it and there we could go on with the, a list of catalysts for the next half hour probably there are just so many things that could blow up on us but there's a lot out there so suffice it to say and one of them will happen and we'll get the next recession and then it becomes a question of, can we handle what's happening? You know, do we have any tools left? And I think the answer in this case is at least possibly no. And that's the interesting story right now, that we may be out of tools. You know, we don't have any weapons left for the next go-round. Well, the clock says we're going to have to leave it there. My guest today has been Mr. John Rubino. The website is dollarcollapse.com. I would encourage you to check it out. And uh, John, even though you're out and about traveling, you took time to talk to us, and we very much appreciate it and love to have you back maybe after the first of the year. That sounds great. Thanks, Dennis. We will be back after these words. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to listen in today, and thanks again to special guest John Rabino for joining us on today's program. Now, as I was talking about in the first segment of today's program and also chatted uh, with Mr. Rabino about it, one of the unintended consequences of an artificially low interest rate environment is that pensions become underfunded. And as I mentioned in the first segment, the implications and fallout of pension underfunding are severe and far-reaching. And I want to give you just one example today of this fallout. Now, I'll give you a bit from an article from the publication WirePoints. You'd be mistaken to think that Harvey, Illinois has a unique pension crisis. It may be the first, and its problems may be the most severe, but the reality is the mess is everywhere, from East St. Louis to Rockford and from Quincy to Danville. A review of Illinois Department of Insurance pension data shows that Harvey 
could be just the start of a flood of garnishments across the state. Now, what does that mean? What is a garnishment? Well, Harvey, Illinois, made news last year when an Illinois court ordered the municipality to hike its property taxes, which are already six times higher than the average property taxes in Indiana, to properly fund the Harvey Firefighter Pension Fund, which is just 22% funded. They have only 20 cents out of every dollar they need to bring the pension plan into full funding. So the state has stepped in on behalf of the pension fund. The state comptroller has begun garnishing the city's tax revenues to make up what the municipality failed to contribute. In response, the city has announced that 40 public safety employees will be laid off. Now, under state law in Illinois, pensions that don't receive required funding can demand that the Illinois comptroller intercept their municipality's tax revenues. In total, and get these numbers, 368 police and fire pension funds, or 57% of all funds, receive less funding than is required to bring them into full funding. So if those numbers hold true... All these cities, 368 cities, face the risk of having their revenues intercepted by the comptroller, and perhaps they'll be forced to lay off police officers and lay off firefighters. Now, the trouble with a municipality raising taxes or a state raising taxes is that it often exacerbates the tax collection problem because... It's easy for residents to leave and move to lower tax locations. Now, the Cato Institute did a study, and this study confirms that more affluent are leaving higher tax states for states that are more tax-friendly. New Jersey, which is a high-tax state, saw its richest resident, David Tepper, move himself and his business to Florida in 2016. The move of that single person and his business saw the state lose revenues of more than $100 million per year in lost taxes. Where did Mr. Tepper go? Florida, which has no state income taxes. New Jersey governor this year, a guy by the name of Phil Murphy, jumped the top state income tax rate from 8.97% to 10.75%. The goal, of course was to raise tax revenues. That's always the goal when tax rates go up. But this move will also likely backfire if it motivates more wealthy and affluent folks to leave the state. As it stands, the top 1% of earners in New Jersey pay 37% of the state's income taxes. State of Connecticut is in a similar situation. Dan Malloy, governor of the state of Connecticut, raised income taxes, and as a result, Thomas Petterfee, worth $20 billion, Dean Metropolis, worth $2 billion, Paul Tudor Jones, worth $4 billion, and Ed- Edward Lampert, worth $3 billion, all left the state of Connecticut. And where did they go? Florida, because again, no state income taxes. Thomas Golisano, founder of Paychex, moved from New York to Florida because of high income taxes. Mr. 
Golisano said the move to Florida saved him $5 million a year in taxes. Ken Fisher, founder of Fisher Investments and billionaire, moved his company from the high-tax state of California to Washington State. Why? Maybe Washington doesn't have the sunshine that Florida does, but Washington State has no state income tax. Fisher said he wanted a lower tax location for his 2,000 employees. Mark Spitznagel moved his company Universal Investments from California to Florida. Tennessee is also picking up a lot of new residents. Among them, Alliance Bernstein, a financial firm, recently moved from New York to Nashville. And again, the reason, taxes. Now, there are example after example of this, and it's not just the wealthy. If you take a look at the cost to move from Los Angeles to Houston versus Houston to Los Angeles, again, a high-tax state to a low-tax state, if you want a 26-foot U-Haul truck, and arguably a billionaire is not using a 26-foot U-Haul truck to move, it's $3,700 to rent the truck to move from Los Angeles to Houston, Houston to Los Angeles, it's only $967. Tells you all the trucks are in Texas, doesn't it? You know, if you'd like to learn more about how central bank policy moving ahead might affect your nest egg and you, I'd encourage you to check out one of our events. You can go to socialsecuritydinner.com to get more information. We also have additional resources on our website, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. That's our show for this week. Hope you got something you can use. I'll be back again next week.